So, last week, after we kind of got through the holiday season, uh, we resumed our study of the book of the Revelation. Uh, took a, a very sobering look at the contents of chapter 6. Uh, chapter 6 in the book of the Revelation is the account of the breaking of six of the seven seals by the Lamb of God, by Jesus. Uh, those seven seals are what held shut the great scroll of God, the scripture says. And I, I believe that that scroll is um, the written record of the story of the history of mankind, man's destiny and God's sovereign plan, his eternal plan to save and to judge this world. As we looked at those six seals being broken in chapter number six, uh, they unleash some pretty serious calamities upon the world. Warfare, bloodshed, famine, poverty, rapid inflation, which is synonymous for economic chaos, death, pestilence, wild beasts, it said. And then just for good measure, there's thrown in a great earthquake and some type of cosmic disturbance that looks like a meteor shower that strikes the earth and wreaks great havoc and damage. Um, I mentioned last week that chapter 6 of the Revelation seems to parallel uh, what Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew, the 24th chapter, Mark, the 13th chapter, and Luke, the 21st chapter, what, was, what it was going to be like on this earth just prior to his return. A part of what he said in Matthew 24 was this. Well, this will be verses 6 through 8. And you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of the birth pangs. You know, if you had a little checklist, you could look at what Jesus said there and go, Wars, check. Rumors of wars, check. Nation rising up against nation, ethnic groups against ethnic groups, check. Earthquakes, famines, check, check, and yet it's just the beginning of what's coming. Wow. You know, in Revelation chapter 6, it talks about a great earthquake, a great earthquake. In Matthew 24, Jesus talks about earthquakes plural, as if it's kind of the, the precursor, the world's getting ready for the big one that's coming. I found an interesting fact regarding earthquakes, and what I think is kind of the the the... the issue the that's not the right word just the the sequence of events that god's got going on in the world okay just check this out in terms of earthquakes from ad1 to 1800 and we know that there's not perfect record of all history during those first 1800 years since jesus was born but anyhow there's record of 11 major earthquakes that's one every approximately every hundred years, a little more than that. Um, from 1900 to 2000, there are 10 major earthquakes, 7.0 on the Richter scale or higher. Well, that's one every 10 years. 2003 to 2007, 29 major earthquakes, 7.0 or higher. That's one every 49 days. 2008, 12, which is one every 37 days. 2009, 16 of them, which is one every 22 days. 2010, 24 major earthquakes of 7.0 or higher, which is one every 15 days. And I don't have statistics on uh, 2011, but 
there's a something being set up here, isn't there? The, the, the earth, the world itself is, um, it's getting ready. All the calamities that are unleashed by the breaking of these six seals in Revelation chapter 6 causes, the Bible says, those who dwell on the earth. And I told you last week, and I want to remind you again, if you weren't here or remind you even if you were, that whenever that phrase, those who dwell on the earth or the dwellers of the earth, whenever that phrase is used in the book of the Revelation, the first time we see it is in chapter 6, verse number 10, and it's used several times after that. It's synonymous for the wicked. Okay, there's a distinction between what the wicked will experience and what the righteous will experience. But it's the wicked, the evil, the rebellious mankind, the the non-believers are going to come to this conclusion by the end of that chapter and the outpouring of those calamities. Verse 16 and 17, which is the end of chapter 6. And they, the dwellers of the earth, said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us. From the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? As I've been studying and preparing for these messages, um, Oxford University's Bible interpretation professor, a man named George Bradford Caird, calls that statement by the dwellers of this earth a terror-stricken expectation. Of God's wrath and judgment that is coming. And that's what it is. Well, chapter 7 is our text for this morning. And in that chapter, it answers the question at the end of chapter 6. Who is able to stand in the midst of all the calamity and all the mess that's going on in the world at this moment in time in Revelation chapter 6? So... This morning, we're going to break our scripture reading into two parts. So, Bill, if you'd come forward. Bill Johnson is going to read for us this morning. We're breaking it into two parts because if you have a bulletin on the back, it talks about chapter 7 being about the two multitudes. And so we're going to read about the first group, and then Bill will come back up after we talk about that a little bit and read for us about the second group. So would you stand, please, as we read together God's word from Revelation chapter 7. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying to them, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. The tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. And from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. The tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Eschar, 12,000. And the tribe of Zebulon, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. Thanks, Bill. You can have a seat. So let's, uh, let's work our way through that first group of people, okay? And just some of the other important points around that. Verse number one again. And after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea. Or on any tree. 
If you were here last week, or even if you weren't, uh, I made this point that's important for us to continue to remember. The Revelation, the book of the Revelation is apocalyptic literature, and it is not written in a sequential fashion. Apocalyptic literature is not written that way. It's not, this happened, then that happened, then that happened, then that happened. We like that kind of order. We like that kind of sequence, but it's not like that in terms of how it's written. It's more like an artist's drawing or a painting, okay? And when an artist paints something, they get the whole canvas and they paint something over here and they rough in some sketch over there and then they put some detail up here and then they go back to that first part and fill it in and shade it in and... That's how a painting develops. And this is more like that. Last week, actually, I showed a little video clip of speed drawing. So you could see that principle of how an artist moves all over the canvas. Go online, maybe, and you could see... Oh, no, wait, that's video, and this was audio. Never mind. Anyhow, there's, that is a great example, I think, of how you've got to get to the whole picture, okay? It's not about every little sequence and thing that happens. It's about the big picture. And that's what the revelation is about. Okay. So as John writes this, he kind of is jumping around a little bit. The point is, let's see what the finished picture looks like. Okay. So in verse number one, where it says after this, that's not a sequential statement to say chapter six happened. And then after this chapter seven happened, how many of you have ever Maybe this is a good example. You've watched a television show, okay, and and let's say a cop show. And the first three minutes, four minutes, five minutes of the show, um, the police show up and there's been a murder and they're kind of starting their investigation. And then on the screen it'll say four hours earlier and then it'll go back and tell you what happened to lead up to that moment. Now, in terms of the show, sequentially... You get the first three minutes when they show up, and then, okay, it's after that, but after that goes back to before that. You see what I'm saying? This is like that, okay? It's like the Star Wars movies. How many of you are Star Wars fans? Okay, Star Wars, that very first movie that happened back in the 70s, wasn't the beginning of the story. Revenge of the Sith happened years later, is the beginning, the prequel, okay? Revelation is like that. Now, if some of you are like Star Wars now, I think I've heard of Star Wars. It's like um, X-Men. They did the same thing, okay? I think Batman has done some of that also. They go back in the story later in time. This is probably not a great example, but this is what that does, okay? So in verse 1, when he says after this, it's not way back, but you get the, the point, Okay. This, to me, I think is likely a shift in the scene that goes back to parallel chapter 6. 7 is written after 6, yes, but it goes back to talk about chapter 6. Part of the reason I think that is, there's great parallel to what's written there at the start of chapter 6 and what we, excuse me, at the start of chapter 7 and what we looked at earlier in chapter 6. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any of the trees. Those four angels holding back these four winds, I think, are a reiteration of Zechariah chapter 6. And I'm going to read this for you. Chapter 6 of Zechariah, verses 1 through 4 and 5, rather, and see if it sounds like anything we talked about last week. Zechariah writes, Now I lifted up my eyes again and looked, and behold, four chariots were coming forth from between the two mountains, and the mountains were bronze mountains. 
With the first chariot were red horses. With the second chariot, black horses. Third chariot, white horses. Fourth chariot, dappled horses. Does that sound familiar? Remember in the beginning of chapter 6, the four horsemen, same colors. Then I spoke and said to the angel who was speaking with me, What are these, my Lord? The angel replied to me, These are the four spirits of heaven going forth after standing before the Lord of all the earth. Four spirits or four winds. Actually, in the Hebrew language, the word wind and spirit, it's the word ruach. Excuse me. And it can be translated either way, wind or spirit. So I think there's a parallel here between after these things and these four angels standing at the four corners. It parallels what we were just looking at with those four horsemen. Okay? So, let's move on. The next verse, uh, verses 2 and 3 of chapter 7. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we've sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. The seal of the living God. What is that? Well, let me, without giving you great specific detail, because I don't think we have it, let's talk a little bit about what seals represent. A seal is either a mark of authorization and ownership, like a signet ring. A king or an emperor used to, when he would have an official document that he was sending out, he would, he would cover it or fold it and put a drop of wax on it and then take his ring with that insignia and stamp it into that wax So that everyone knew, this is from the king. This belongs to him. This is authorized. This is official. Whoever it is that's going to have this seal is going to be authorized by God. A sign of ownership upon their life. Authorized for a very specific purpose that God has for them. The other thing that a seal means, a seal is also a mark of protection or preservation. Any of you people can, I would say ladies, but sometimes men can also. It's kind of like a canning jar, that whole process of you seal in the good stuff, but you also seal out the bad stuff. So there's a twofold purpose in the seal of the living God, to mark these people, to authorize them, to show that they belong to God, but also to protect them and to preserve them through this difficult time. So this other angel that ascends from the rising sun that has the seal of the living God, he cries out to those four angels and says, don't do it yet. Don't harm. Don't harm the sea or the trees or the earth. Now, to get again a big picture of this book, of the Revelation, when we get to the the trumpets that are going to be blown in chapter number 8, there's a great parallel with the first three trumpets and what they do to the earth and to the sea and to the trees. It's very possible that, again, this, this is... This has a lot of overlap in terms of what's going on here, okay? Those trumpets may be greater detail to the things we're just reading about here in chapter 7. But also, when you go back and think about chapter 6 and what was unleashed on this world, like the the meteor shower and the great earthquake, folks, there's going to be some damage done to the earth and to the sea and to the trees. It's impossible that some of that doesn't already happen in this. And so if we go now... So sequentially, what's when and how does this all play together and fit together? It's possible that the seals and the seventh seal releases the trumpets and the trumpets release the bowls. There is a sequential possibility here. But there's also the possibility that these things overlap 
and that the seals talk about the same kind of things that the trumpets do, only the trumpets have greater detail, and then the bowls have greater detail even than the trumpets do. So if you're sitting there going, I don't get this. Great. You're right on the page we're supposed to be on because we can't break this all down into logical. It's all so clear and so understandable. It's apocalyptic literature. And what we're after here is the big picture and what's going on. Okay? That's what we're after in what we're looking at here. The question that this chapter answers according to these verses is who can stand? End of chapter, who can stand amidst all this calamity? Well, if seven refers back to six, which I think in many ways it does, it answers that question. Who can stand? It's at the end of that slide. The ones sealed by God. Those are the ones who will stand. Kind of as a proof text, the flip side of that, to know that that's who this is talking about, who can stand. If you go to Revelation chapter 9, verses 3 through 5, this is where the, the fifth trumpet is sounded, okay? And this is kind of like a, an opposite example of the same thing. When that fifth trumpet is sounded, it says this, Then out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth. Power was given them, as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth, nor any green thing or any tree, but only the men who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads and they were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. So those who can stand are the ones who have the seal and those who aren't going to stand are the ones who don't have the seal. Okay. Again, scripture like this is what causes me to, to lean towards an understanding that says believers will not be raptured out of here when all this stuff is going on. We won't be gone before the great tribulation breaks loose. Now, I understand that some people would say, hey, these people who are sealed in this chapter, Christians, the church is already gone. These are people who become believers after the rapture occurs. I don't agree with that, but I can see how somebody would believe that because... It's not like these different views of the rapture just came out of a vacuum. There are scriptures that could be taken to lean one direction or the other. I just think that in the whole counsel of God and the full context of his word, it doesn't seem to me like we're going to be out of here when all this is going on. One other little note of interest with regards to this seal of God. There are two different words in scripture that talk about the same ideal. The seal of God that this chapter 7 is talking about is the Greek word sphragis. Sphragis, okay, S-P-H-R-A-G-I-S. The mark of the beast Something very different than the seal of God, okay? Never to be confused with each other. It's always a totally different word. It's the word charagma. There's nothing like those two words. I mean, they're not alike in any way. Now, both marks will be on the forehead. That's what it says here in chapter 7. And we know the mark of the beast will either be there or on the right hand. That's also a possibility. Whereas the beast's mark will be clearly visible. I mean, it will be a mark that people can see. Because it's a part of the world system, the anti-God system. I personally believe that this seal of God will be invisible. It will be something seen in the spirit world. Because that's where the battle's taking place, folks. 
And God's seal upon his own is something that in the spirit world can be seen. And because this is a spiritual battle we're in, those who need to see it can see it. And God's protection doesn't have to be a literal sign that says, I belong to God. All the spirits out there active and involved will know and will be able to see and tell that that's the case. Okay. Then it talked about verses 4 through 8, this number of those who were sealed. This first group, this 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then the next several verses, the next couple slides, we can just put them up. Goes through and talks about each of the tribes and that there were 12,000 from each of those tribes. I'm amazed as I've been studying this and preparing and researching for this, the, the wide variety of opinions and the great debate that these five little verses have caused in Christianity. As to who is this referring to? Who are these 144,000? Who does this represent? Well, there are three major theories on this. One of them is not the Jehovah's Witness. This was one of their huge doctrines at one point in time, that the 144,000 represented them. The only problem is when their group got larger than 144,000, they didn't know what to do. So they had to go back to square one. Okay? That is not a prominent doctrine. Okay? Here are the three that are the, the represents probably the, the main opinions held by uh, people of the faith. Who are these 144,000? The first belief is that it's the remnant of Israel that is genuinely saved and that the number is literally 144,000. Now, when I say genuinely saved, I'm talking about Jewish people who come to faith, real faith, genuine faith in Christ as Messiah. Just because a person is a Jew does not mean that they somehow get this mystical free pass into heaven. There is only one name by which we must be saved, and it's Jesus. And so genuinely saved means Jews who come to actual faith in Christ, okay? The second major option, main option, is the remnant of Israel genuinely saved. Again, they come to faith in Christ as Messiah, but that the number is symbolic. It's figurative. It's not literally 144,000. Why would people think that it could be symbolic or figurative? Well, because 12, and numbers mean something to God, right? Numbers have meaning and purpose. 12 is the number of God's divine governing order. He built the world and nature to work that way. How many months are there in a year? 12. A day is divided into a.m. and p.m., two 12-hour periods. There were 12 apostles. There were 12 tribes of Israel. 12 is an important number. It's a governing number. So when the scripture talks about 12,000 from the 12 tribes, the 144,000, I think it's easy to see that figuratively, very much like when Peter came to Jesus and said, so, Lord, this guy's bugging me. How many times do I have to forgive him? How about if I forgive him seven times? What was Jesus' response? Oh, not seven, 70 times seven. Now, seven is the number of perfection. Was Jesus saying, so Peter, once the guy gets to 491, you can clock him a good one because you fulfilled your obligation? Was it literally 490 times or was it a principle? Was it figurative? Was it symbolic? It was was that. 
And so I think it's very easy to see this 144,000 as being a figurative number, not having to be a literal number. Now the third option. Who are these 144,000? The third option is it's the church. It's not Israel. It's the church because the church is the true Israel. And it's a symbolic number. There are a growing number of theologians and biblical scholars who believe, and I am amazed at the number. As I was researching this, I could not believe the number of commentators who believe this last view, that the church has replaced Israel in the plan of God. It's called replacement theology. I have to be very upfront with you, and if I offend you, I'm not sorry. Um, And we may live next together in heaven, so we better choose to get along even if we don't agree on everything, okay? I do not think replacement theology is a biblical idea. I just, I don't see it. I, I, I have such a hard time understanding how so many people could think that was right. Here's some of the reasons why they think it's right, okay? A replacement theologian would say, hey, wait a minute. This is talking about those who are sealed, All bondservants of God are sealed. Everybody is. So it can't be talking about literal Israel, literal Jewish people. It's got to be a spiritual thing. It's got to be the church. I don't have any problem with all believers being sealed. I think the scripture says that. Look at these verses. In him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. It's given as a pledge of our inheritance. So that's great. 2 Corinthians uh, 1, 21 and 22 reiterate the same point. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. I have no issue with, hey, it's not just Jews who are sealed. Everybody's sealed. Well, the Bible says that. Okay, that's not a problem. That's not an issue. But there's nothing in this text that should cause anyone to to believe that uh, the Jews or literal Israel being sealed for a special purpose, for a special assignment by the Holy Spirit to stand and to endure the tribulation would have to be exclusionary. Wait a minute, it can't just be them, it's us too. I don't think it's talking that way. I think it's saying, yes, we're all sealed, but they're sealed for a special purpose, for a special reason at this time. It would be like me saying, so we chose Bill Johnson today to read the scripture. And God anointed him and and sealed him, as it were, to do that specific thing. Would, would you think that that meant that I thought that nobody else who's read in the past weeks or is going to read in the future weeks should read because they're not sealed? No. It's talking about sealed for a specific purpose, a specific thing that God calls you to do. It's not exclusionary. It doesn't have to be taken as an exclusionary thing. Well, there's another reason why replacement theologians believe what they believe, and that is, hey, when you look at that list, the tribe of Dan is not listed there. And Dan was one of the tribes, so this can't literally be Israel. Hey, when you read through the Old Testament and read about the 12 tribes, you'll read that there are 14 different tribes listed at different points. Okay, Dan's not here. What about Ephraim, Joseph, Manasseh? There's some interchangeable parts and pieces to the listing of the 12 tribes at different times. So I don't think that's one worth hanging your hat on in terms of saying, see, it means it's not literally Israel. I just don't see it. Here's the third reason, and probably, probably one of the bigger ones. Um, 
that a, a replacement theologian believes what they believe. Galatians 3, verses 28 and 29 says this. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. But you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. A replacement theologian would say, see, that proves It's all about being a follower of Christ. And the followers of Christ, the church, those are what a true Jew is now. I absolutely, again, agree that the scripture is talking about being a follower of Christ more than it's talking about being a Jew. Because it doesn't matter just that you're a Jew or that you're a Greek or that you're slave or that you're free or that you're a male or female. It's about following Christ. But it doesn't say... That once you became a Christian, Mike, you're no longer a man. You still are, and your wife is still a woman. And you can still be a Christian and be a Jew or a Greek or slave or free. It's not about social status, social condition, sex, or or race. That doesn't matter. But those things do still exist, okay? It just means that's not what impacts your standing with God. Genuinely saved Israel does not get a special pass just because they're Jewish. It's about faith in Messiah. Jesus as Messiah. Nobody's disputing that, okay? But this scripture doesn't disprove that. You have to, again, see the bigger picture. The bigger heart and plan of God. Romans 11. I'm going to ask you to make a note to go read that on your own this week. I don't have time this morning. And I've... I've preached about this two times in the past year with regards to this replacement theology thing, okay? So you go read it this week if you have any questions or you're wrestling with this. Because Paul starts chapter 11 of Romans with these words. Has God rejected his people? May it never be. So right out of the box, Paul is saying, God has not rejected Israel. In other words, the church is not the new Israel. Israel's still Israel. God's still got a plan for Israel. But God also has a plan for us. And this this chapter talks all about the fact that, yes, it was the initial rejection of Messiah by Israel that opened the door to us as Gentiles to come in. But it didn't exclude them. And it didn't end God's plan for them. As a matter of fact, this, this chapter even uses the word words, you've been grafted in, you've been included in, but not to their exclusion or their elimination. And don't be arrogant about the fact that you're included. Unfortunately, I think much of replacement theology is very arrogant. We're it now. It's us, not them. What is an everlasting covenant if it doesn't mean everlasting? What's the end of something everlasting? There isn't one. It's an eternal covenant, an everlasting covenant. It's not over just because they rejected him. It allowed us in, but God still has a great plan. For the nation and the people of Israel. Unfortunately, I think if I'm not already in trouble, this might get me there. I believe that there is an enormous anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish movement in our world today. Against the nation of Israel and against the Jewish people. But folks, I want to say this. I think that replacement theology is one of those anti-Semitic issues in a spiritual realm, maybe not against the nation of Israel, but I think it's dangerous ground to, to be in a place or to live in a place that thinks we replace them. 
What a, what a small God it is to think that he can't have two peoples with two purposes under the same umbrella of what he's about in this world. Are you getting that? Does that make sense? Personally, I think it's option number two that is the right one. That this, this is literal Israel. Jews genuinely saved. But I do think the number is symbolic. Okay, I don't think it has to literally be 144,000. I want to show you something which I think lends to why I believe that. We, we've talked about how this part of the revelation overlaps three things, three chapters in the Gospels. I think there's also a great overlap in terms of Old Testament prophecy and this book. Very specifically, the book of Daniel has a great... You can see Daniel woven all through the revelation, as you do Zechariah, as you do Ezekiel. Now, there's a verse in Ezekiel that I want to read to you this morning that speaks about the future judgment of Israel. And it seems to divide that judgment between those who are spiritually faithful Jews, which is what I think the 144,000 represents, and those who are not. Okay? Now, as you listen to this verse, I want you to see if you can see, and I think you will, how it fits in what John is writing here in chapter 7 about who this 144,000 is, that it's, that it's genuine believers, Jewish believers. Ezekiel 4, excuse me, 9, 4 says this. The Lord said to him, Ezekiel, go through the midst of the city, even through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on their foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations which are being committed in its midst. So in the midst of of the city, in the midst of Jerusalem, there's going to be a group of Jews who sigh and groan over these abominations. These are spiritually sensitive, spiritually in-tune people. And you're to put a mark on them. Check this out. In the Greek language, the word mark is the word tau. And it's either represented by an X... Or a cross. God is going to mark these Jewish believers with a chi. The first letter in Christ. You know how, remember, it's not so fashionable anymore. But there was a season in time when people would say, don't say Xmas. Keep Christ in Christmas. You know what the origin of the X in Xmas is? It's the letter chi. It's an abbreviation for Christ. And so these Jews are going to be marked either with the chi, or a cross. Hmm. You see how that fits? You see how they are, they are marked by Christ as being his followers, as trusting him as Messiah. I think the 144,000 is a symbolic number, but I absolutely believe it's talking about Jews who are marked because they have come to faith in Jesus. Okay. Let's read about the second multitude. Bill, if you would, please. And if you all stand while he's coming forward, we're going to take a look at the second group here real quickly. After these things, I looked and behold a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne, before the lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. 
Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in the white robes, who are they, and where have they come from? And I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are, made, or they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst any more, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and will guide them to springs of the water of life. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Amen. You can have a seat. Somebody started to clap. Yeah, that's good news. That'd be worth clapping about. There's no doubt about that. All right, so the second multitude, too great a number to count. See, when I read what we first read and what we just read, to me it's, it's pretty obvious that the language is so different and so distinct that it's talking about two separate groups. And most replacement theologists would say, no, no, it's, it's just two different ways to look at the same group of people. I don't think God would have gone to the trouble of being so specific enlisting those tribes and, and, and those numbers in principle and making it it's clear, uh, you know, this is those sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. But he didn't really mean that. Huh? If the plain sense makes sense, you don't need any other sense. I think that's really what it is. It takes work for me to think this is talking about the same group of people because the language is so different and the, the context is different. Why is it hard to believe that God has one people made up of different types of people? I mean, if this were a war we were talking about, it's easy to see that there's one army, but armies have different battalions, right? And different battalions have different assignments, and they're fighting different battles in this great big war. If this were a war, oh, wait a, wait a minute, this is a war. You get it? It, it? it doesn't take any stretch of the imagination to see that this first group is, is a battalion, so to speak. And the second group is another battalion. They're all a part of the same army. But they've just got different things they're called to do. They're sealed for different tasks and different responsibilities. All right, verse 9. After these things, again, it's not time sequential. It's You can't say everything there is to say about everything all at once. So the after this, these things is still talking about the same vision in a painter's kind of way. These folks have white robes. Now, that could mean that they are martyrs. And I think verse 14 seems to point to this being very specific about the great tribulation and the context easily could be that this is talking about martyrs. Now, there are some scholars who think, well, maybe that's included, but this one seems to be a bigger picture of Christ's. The white robe doesn't just represent martyrs, but it also throughout Scripture represents victory and Christ's righteousness that all believers have in him. It matters not to me if this is specifically just martyrs or if this is people who've lived throughout history who died a natural death or people who are raptured when Jesus does come again later on in the story. I think that's really not the issue. The issue is the picture here of these multitudes before the throne. 
They have palm branches. Palm branches are always a sign of celebration and gratitude and praise. You remember when Jesus, his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, what were they waving? Palm branches. What were they shouting? Hosanna! You know what that literally means? Hosanna means save us now. At this point, that's done. You don't need to say save us now. These people are already saved. They're there. Save us now, done. It's done. The scripture here says salvation belongs to our God. The language in, excuse me, the scripture says salvation to our God. The inference is salvation belongs to our God. In other words, it's his to give. You don't have to earn it. You just have to receive it. It's not about doing a work or doing anything to earn it. And salvation here isn't just the gift that gets you to heaven. It's not just talking about salvation from a strictly spiritual sense. That word salvation also includes the idea of escape or preservation or safety or victory. And so this could be a word that's talking about the martyrs, but it also might be a picture of everyone, whether they were martyred or not, who stands before God and says, you've provided a means of escape. You've provided us victory. We have come safely to the other side. Even if it is martyrs, we have too small a view of God's eternal purposes. We think, well, you know, we should live 80 years Gosh, what if I martyred at the age of 30? I missed out on 50 years. You know what 50 years looks like in the scope of eternity? You can't hardly even see it. We have to get bigger thinking going on here, folks, okay? And the other thing I think that's important for us to realize, I don't totally understand this, but martyrs have a special place in the heart of God. And one of the reasons is, Martyrdom seems to be keenly connected to revival and the salvation of others. If we're in the end times at this point in the story and there is this great multitude, if it's not just martyrs, if it's a great multitude and it represents more of an eternal picture of people who have come to faith in Christ, if you study church history at all, you'll realize that somehow the blood spilled by martyrs has a great impact on people coming to Christ. While I don't totally understand it, I think it looks something like this. He gave his life for what he believes. There's got to be something to this. He could have said, okay, I don't believe that. Just spare me. I, I change my mind. I take it back. But if he's willing to, if she's willing to die for that thing, it must be true. And when you study history, you'll find that martyrdom is always connected to many people being open to receive and actually receiving the gospel. If we're near the end times here and we know that dark is getting darker and evil's getting more evil, we also know that there's going to be a great outpouring of the Spirit of God in the end times. And I personally think that martyrdom may have a connection to a great revival that will come to this world as people realize there's got to be something to this. These people are willing to die for what they believe. What do I believe? I don't believe anything. Maybe I ought to examine this Christian stuff, this Jesus, the claims that he made. Maybe there's truth to this. Martyrdom seems to open a door to salvation and revival to others. I can't prove that, but I I really think that's the case. Okay. Verse 11. 
all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. There is a, an amazing anthem here, a sevenfold anthem of praise and worship. Blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor and power and might be to our God. A sevenfold anthem of all God is and all God does for people. There's something powerful in that statement. Then one of those elders says to John, these clothed in the white robes, who are they? Where are they come from? That's a rhetorical question. John looks at him and goes, I don't know, you know. And it's as if this elder goes, I'm glad I asked that question. And then he tells them, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation that have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. I think it's talking about martyrs in this case. Bottom line is, it's a bunch. It's from every tongue, every tribe, every nation, and it's too many to count. Aren't you glad for that? See, whosoever will may come. It's a wide open, it's a narrow way, but it's a wide open door for anyone who will come to faith in Jesus. Then as we close, then the scene jumps ahead and it sounds continuous, verses 13 and 14, but I think it parallels the end of the book. If you on your own go look at chapter 22, verses 1 through 5, you'll see an incredible parallel between what's written there and what's written here. This jumps ahead to the final outcome. The final result of the victory of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will spread His tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer nor thirst any more. Nor will the sun beat down on them nor any heat. For the Lamb is in the center of the throne. He will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Wow, that sounds just like the end of the story. Because I think it's a jump ahead. And I think it says to martyrs, it's worth it. Hold on. You know, I've said this phrase a lot. Life is hard. God is good. Don't quit. We win. If anybody invented that statement, it was the martyrs. How could we for a minute think our life is hard compared to what they endured? They shed their blood for the gospel. If anyone coined the phrase, life is hard, God is good, don't quit, we win. It was them. And what a great reminder this end of this chapter is about the fact that they win and we win. This is what is coming. It is yet to be totally, finally fulfilled, but it's what the end of the book tells us is coming. And what a great way to end this chapter, isn't it? With a picture of the ultimate destiny and outcome of believers, you and me. It's kind of like a preview of coming attractions, isn't it? Speaking of coming attractions, I'd like you to stand, please. I want to finish this morning reading to you a preview of coming attractions. This is the first verse of chapter 8, which is where we're going next week. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. wonder if that was a, oh, and they were speechless. <gasps> they were overwhelmed. You want to know? You'll come back next week and find out. Okay.
You can have a seat. No, stay standing because I want to pray for you. I I felt this morning as I was up early and preparing for today that um, there was a a great uh, timeliness in terms of talking about this chapter and the victory that's ours and the suffering of a martyr and the fast that we're about ready to undertake. Now, literally give your life for Jesus versus 10 days of a liquid fast, there's no comparison. But suffering is relative, okay? I want to go on record as saying to you that I hate fasting. Oh, good, honey. I hate it too. It's okay to hate it. Yeah, it's okay to hate it. (laughs) To pretend like I love this? I don't. But I believe God's called us to this. I really do. And I want to say this to you also. This morning, uh, Pastor Rob came up to me and and said, as he was praying, he said, I think the Lord said that this fast is going to make a profound difference in the lives of people and our church and our city and our nation and our world. I agree with that. And here's, here's why I agree with that. Because this past week, The enemy has been beating me up on a regular basis with what a stupid idea this was. Who do you think you are? This isn't going to make any difference. Nothing's going to change. Fast for victory. There aren't going to be victories. Nice idea, Kent. What a dumb thing to do. I don't want to do this. Anybody else tuned into that radio station at all this week? Man, it's just been killing me. Which reminds me, or makes me know rather, that I'm on to something. We're on to something in this. The enemy is coming strongly against this, I believe, because profound things are going to happen as we do this. So I just, I want to pray for you today, and I'll be including myself, Lord, in this prayer, that um, the enemy does not beat us up, does not discourage us, does not convince us not to do this because it was just Kent's idea or a dumb thing to do or it's not going to make any difference. I believe it is going to make a difference. I really do. And you know what? There may be things that this does. We won't see this side of heaven. We may stand before God someday and he goes, remember that 10 day liquid fast you did? How could I forget? And the Lord says, this happened because of that. I never knew. We won't know some things. Other things, I think we will know. But there's going to be discouragement that comes against you over the next couple of weeks. We just have to stand against that and know where that comes from. I also want to say this. I've had people say to me this week, Pastor Kent, I, I don't know if I can even do two days. Two days is better than no days. I can only do breakfast. Breakfast is better than nothing. This is about grace, okay? It's about seeking God to do what he tells you to do. And if you don't make it to the finish line, what you've done still moves heaven. It still will accomplish things for the kingdom of God and towards victory. I believe that with all my heart. I really do. And so I don't want you to get under any kind of, oh, I'm going to fail. I might as well not even try. By God's grace, do what he tells you to do and do it as long as he gives you the grace to do it. Okay? I don't think on this side of it, we can know that we'll have the grace to do it. But it's very easy to let the thought of, I'm not going to have the grace to do it, talk me out of doing it in the first place. Do what we can do when it starts and do what we can do the next day and just take it a day at a time and don't get all stressed out about it and don't worry about failure. 
God's got to give us the grace to do this or it's not going to accomplish anything anyhow. Okay? Does grace abound in this? It really does. Okay, so let me pray for you. And then when we're done, uh, I'll dismiss you. And if you need prayer for anything else, we'll have the ministry team up here as we always do. And they'll be happy to pray for you with anything else that you need. But I wanted to pray and bless you today with regards to this fast. So, Lord, uh, I just lift up um, my brothers and sisters who are here. Uh, Again, those in first service, those who didn't make it today, who are going to participate in this. And, Lord, I just pray that you would pour out great grace upon them. Help us, Lord, identify the schemes of the enemy. Help us know when it's his voice that speaks to discourage us, to get us to quit, to get us to want to quit, to make us think we can't. Lord, all those things that he wants to to say and speak, we just ask that you would give us great discernment to know his voice and to not follow him, but to follow you. And I pray a great outpouring of grace. And clarity and wisdom for people, Lord, because this is a fast I really believe that doesn't need and shouldn't look exactly the same for everybody. It's a, it's a great uh, opportunity to seek you and to hear you individually as a part of this army you're calling to do this. All of our assignments might look a little different, Lord, but that's okay. Because we are under the banner and under the umbrella of victory that you want to give in our lives and our families and in our church and for our city and our nation and this world. So, Lord, uh, help us continue to hear your voice, to lean into your grace, to press into your grace for the strength that we need to follow what it is you call us to do. Fill us with faith to believe you for the victories that you want to give. And, Lord, I would ask, though, that we do see some of them on this side of heaven. Some of us are desperate to see some of these things, and they seem to have some time sensitivity to them. And so we cry out to you, and we believe you, and we thank you in advance for the victories that we will see, for the good that you're going to do in and through this fast. Lord, our our heart's desire is uh, to become more in tune with your spirit and less obedient to our flesh. And I know that's a part of what fasting accomplishes, Lord. So I pray that you do that in all of our lives and all of our hearts. And that uh, we look back on this time, uh, seeing it as a great opportunity to walk with you, to partner with you in the victories that you desire to give. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, have a great week, okay? We start uh, midnight, Monday night, Tuesday morning. And uh, if you need prayer, ministry team people, why don't you come on forward and folks feel free to come and uh, engage them and tell them what you need and they'll be happy to pray for you. Bless you.